Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss what policies can level up economic performance. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute for Government and I'll be chairing today's event and we're really delighted to be doing this event in partnership with Policy at Manchester. This is part of a set of events that we are doing together to explore this topic of levelling up economic performance across the country. Levelling up was obviously a key manifesto commitment for the Conservative Party in 2019, but it's likely to remain a key topic as we go into the next election as well, with not only the Conservatives continuing to push this agenda, but also Labour focusing on this as one of their ambitions uh, for after the next election. So today I'm really delighted that we uh, are here today to look at what the evidence says about what policies can really make a difference to do this. And I'm delighted to be joined uh, by an excellent panel to discuss this. So we have my colleague Tom Pope, who is our Deputy Chief Economist and leads our programme of work on levelling up, who will reflect on some of the work we've done in this area. We also have Ruth Kelly, who is the Chief Analyst at the National Audit Office, and will be able to share some of the findings of their work on past efforts to try and level up economic performance. We also have Adam Hawksby, who is Deputy Director of UK Onward, uh, and Bart Van Ark, uh, who is Professor of Productivity Studies at the Alliance Manchester Business School and Managing Director of the Productivity Institute at the University of Manchester. Um, a few brief housekeeping notes before we set off. Um, we will be live tweeting from at IFG events, um, so using the hashtag IFG Leveling Up, so please do um, follow and tweet along. Um, and if you're watching online or indeed in the room and have your mobile phone in front of you, um, please do start sending in your questions via the Slido function. For anyone watching online, it's the right-hand panel on your screen. Um, for those of you in the room, you can either uh, submit questions that way if you'd prefer to remain anonymous, um, uh, or the, the, please do add your name and where you're from if you're happy to not be anonymous online. Um, but if you're in a room, we'll also be coming around with a microphone when we get to the Q&A session, so you can do it live as well. So anyway, without further ado, um, Tom, do you want to kick us off? You've led our work in this area that published last year. What were your main conclusions about what policies work? Thanks, Jamie. So I'm going to talk briefly, and it will be brief, and there's a lot more detail in the paper that I'd encourage you to find on our website um, about this work that we published last year. And what we were motivated to understand in that report was really how far is the government in tackling this really big, long-standing problem of productivity differences between particularly London and the South East and the rest of the UK? How far is it pursuing the types of policies that, based on the evidence and past experience, you would expect to be successful? And so we um, sort of undertook a review of the, the policy evidence, if you like, what types of policies um, are robustly linked to improved economic performance. Um, and then we also looked at case studies of past examples where levelling up has been successful. What have been the decisive policies there? to try to reach a, a judgment. And um, so very briefly, um, so two key findings I want to highlight. The first is, I suppose to set off the conversation on a slightly somber note, is to emphasize just how difficult and rare sort of national scale leveling up, if you like, is um, you know, productivity gaps in the UK have been persistent for you know, at least a century. That's how far we've got data, almost certainly longer, um, and actually, it's not just the UK where gaps are persistent. We looked at other countries as well, and you find that big changes in sort of regional economic you know, patterns of activity are really rare, and, and that's for good reason. You know, these, these differences between different regions, economic performance, are driven by you know, big economic structural factors, um, you know, and, the, and they tend to be self-reinforcing as well. You know, the places that have the best jobs tend to attract the best people. You know, there's a sort of cycle that, that tends to reinforce rather than counteract that. 
Um, so in the work that we did, we wanted to assess um, the government's plans. And to do that, we looked at the levelling up missions. We looked at the five missions that we saw as sort of most linked to um, driving improved economic performance. So the missions on schools, skills, transport, um, broadband, and R&D. Um, and the big tick, I suppose, for the government is that the types of policies they're pursuing in those missions, you know, ambitious plans for what they can achieve by 2030, align with the evidence. So the types of policies that you would expect to work and you know, have a robust evidence base behind them. So to give just one example in the interest of time, um, the skills mission is to increase the number of um, sort of technical qualifications that are being undertaken each year. And there's really good evidence that there's a strong economic return to people who are doing those um, those qualifications. So that, that's great. And similarly, that applies in the other missions too. Um, the, the downside, I suppose, and the real challenge that we identify is that based on, I suppose, standard policy estimates of how much impact these policies might have, even if you achieved all five of those missions, which are in some cases quite stretching, um, and all of the benefits accrued outside of London and the South East, you wouldn't see a really noticeable change in the economic geography of, of the UK. The broad conclusion that London and the South East you know, dominates in terms of productivity, you know, 35, 40% higher productivity uh, than the rest of the country would persist. And so that's for a few different reasons, and that links to the recommendations that we make. In some cases, uh, that's because the missions just aren't quite ambitious enough. So on skills in particular, I mentioned that robust evidence base, but even if the skills mission is achieved, that wouldn't actually return the number of technical qualifications being started each year, even to 2014 levels by 2030. So this is hardly a step change in the number of uh, those, uh, you know, those starts that are happening. There are also some policies that aren't covered by the missions uh, that could play an important role. We highlight early years education and university education as two of those. Um, but there's also a more fundamental problem here, which is that lots of kind of individual policies that happen kind of spread evenly across the country aren't going to be big enough to counteract those big economic structural forces that I mentioned at the start. Those forces that mean that London is the place where lots of the high-skilled jobs are based. That means that lots of the, you know, lots of the talent gets sucked in. If you really want to drive big change and you know, really make meaningful changes to those productivity differentials, um, you need places that can compete with London um, and sort of change those patterns of migration, change those patterns of where businesses want to locate and where people want to work. Um, now, we conclude that the best way to do that is more targeted economic investments in cities, and particularly our sort of second, third cities that tend to underperform internationally. Um, now, that might be politically a difficult argument. I'm sure we can touch on that later. But now, that is where the economic logic points. That's where the real economic potential is in the UK, in a way that can drive benefits to those regions as well. Now, very briefly, the final point that I want to make is that in our work, um, we highlight that um, in the, all these past examples of successful levelling up, there are some common success factors, I suppose. One is that it's never just one policy that drives success. It's a set of different policies. It always takes a long time, you know, decades rather than years, and it relies on consistent long-term policy. Now, that means that the way, fixing the way that policy is made, you know, that's almost the opposite of how regional policy tends to work in the UK. You know, we've had lots of policy churn, as past IFG work has highlighted. So if we really want this to be a successful project, we also need to fix the way that, that policy works, both in central and local government. Um, and I will leave that there for now.
Brilliant. Thank you, Tom. But I'll come to you next. The Productivity Institute has done a lot of work on UK-wide productivity. To what extent do you think is, it is fair to say that lower productivity outside London and the South East is holding back UK-wide performance? And to what extent do you think policies can make a difference to change that picture? Yeah, so there's a lot to talk about. Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I, I will spend just one minute rehearsing some of the numbers, which have been well rehearsed, but I think it is important to understand why the UK is exceptional. I mean, regional differences happen everywhere, all the time. In that sense, the UK is no exception, but there seems to be something specific in the UK that needs to be emphasized. First of all, regional differences in the UK are not so much a matter of different employment rates. I mean, employment is pretty good across the country. Unemployment rates do not differ much between regions. It's the productivity growth rates that are exceptionally large, and the productivity levels, I should say, that are exceptionally large. Um, the second thing is that the regional differences in the UK, as we all know, is essentially a London South East versus the rest of the factors. Some exceptions, you know, Scotland around Aberdeen because of the oil and Cheshire and a few other places. But there is no country in the OECD where it is basically London and South East and the rest kind of story. That's important to realize. Third important thing to realize is that this diverge, we have seen divergence in regional uh, inequalities during the 1990s and 2000s. That was because the well-performing regions, London and the Southeast, were doing better than the rest. That's also a common effect. We've seen it in many other OECD countries. We call this agglomeration effects. And that's, that's a normal thing to happen. The problem is that in the last 15 years, these differences have become very persistent. It's not that the, the London and South East continue to outpace the rest. It's basically that the, the level difference became very persistent. And, and the regions that had fallen behind did have no opportunity to basically catch up. And then the last thing on the numbers is, or, or on, on, the, on the diagnosis, if you like, is basically what, what you already referred to, Tom, and that is that this is not so much a, a, a cities versus town issue. It is really London versus the rest, and it is particularly second-tier cities, which are very large, which uh, have about 40% of the UK population and inhabitants that are really falling behind. I did some work myself comparing Manchester and Amsterdam, you know, cities of similar size in terms of number of people, and the productivity level difference is about 75% or 25% difference. Uh, so, so, those are, so those are some of the, of the numbers that are, uh, are important to realize. So what does this all mean? Uh, well, it means that local productivity challenges are, are nationwide in nature. They're not kind of local, they're systemic, and they are specific. The kind of typical scale productivity relationships that you get from productivity effects, from, from agglomeration effects, don't really play out in the UK as well as they play out in other places. And there is this big persistence issue which sort of creates this kind of own dynamic. If you can get out of the sort of low productivity trap and you can continue that low productivity trap with a sort of low wage, low scale, low productivity uh, model, you can really very easily get out of it. So why is it a national problem? And then I'll stop, there's a lot more to say, but then we'll, 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 I'm sure we pick up a few other things. It's a national problem, obviously, because if a very large part of the country is economically weak, it just offsets any kind of gains that we're making in the rest of the country. So that's obvious. You know, large regions that are falling behind uh, are, are creating a national problem. But there are additional problems, which is that you know, the economically weaker part of the countries tend to be less resilient. And therefore, they get into sort of this persistent mode. They can't get out of it because their resilience is actually declining and their ability to upskill, to attract investment, uh, um, uh, to uh, create um, uh, better health conditions and more well-being are becoming problematic. 
Inequalities in productivity are strongly related to other socioeconomic uh, inequalities, which creates a big national problem. And of course, rising regional uh, um, inequalities create a political geography, or sort of, you know, sometimes called the geography of discontent, of which we have seen effects in the UK. Again, not unique to the UK. I'm from the Netherlands myself, as you can hear. We have geographies of discontent in the Netherlands. The issue is the problems tend to be just a touch worse in the UK, and I think we need to analyze what is it that makes it worse in the UK and what can we possibly do about it. So let me stop there for a moment, and then I'm sure we'll come back to a couple of issues later. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Ruth, as I mentioned at the start, the NAO has done work looking at what's been tried in the past, what's worked and what's not. What, what did we learn from that experience? Yeah, well, I mean, as, as Tom said, this is a really long-standing problem, and, and levelling up might be a, a newish slogan, but the, but the issues underpinning it aren't. So we had a look, um, we've done a fair bit of work on this, we published something last year on supporting local economic growth, and we found that there have been more than 55 separate initiatives relating to local economic growth over the past 50 years, with, with a fair chunk of spending attached to that, about 18 billion between 2011 and, and 2020. But this, the sad truth is that despite all that, we actually have very, very little understanding of what works based on those, those policies because government didn't consistently evaluate them. Um, and so there's a fairly poor evidence base of, of, of what needs to be done. Um, and that's, I think that's not unique to local economic growth. We looked at evaluation more generally across government and we, and we found that government uh, doesn't evaluate most of its work. Um, but I think it's more the challenge is perhaps more acute when it comes to local economic growth. There's certain factors that, that make it harder. And that includes things like the churn that, that's been mentioned already. So not only all those different in initiatives, but also all the different institutions. Um, the uh, urban development corporations turned into the RDAs, turned into the LEPs, the local enterprise part partnerships, and so on. So it's very hard to, to evaluate when things change all the time. Um, it's technically challenging. So it can be very difficult to disentangle the effects of a particular policy on, say, productivity when that's affected by a whole lot of other circumstances and, and policies at the same time. And I think also there's something there about the level. And so um, mostly evaluation has been left to local authorities and to the LEPs to evaluate individual programs. And there are, there are barriers to high quality evaluation at that level, including sort of capacity and resources. Um, it's good to see that, that DLAC, that's the, the Department um, for Leveling Up Com Communities and, and Housing, is sort of has made some good steps forward. Um, there's an increased focus on monitoring and evaluation, including looking at the right level for that evaluation to take place. So that's, that's really good to see. Um, and, and all that said, I think there are, there are some lessons that can be pulled out and that we, we, we looked at how they have been embedded in the, in the new policies and some of the, the leveling up the new frameworks and, and funds. Maybe just to highlight um, a few of those. I guess the first one is, as, as Tom said, there's something there about the evidence suggests there's a, that, that you need broad-based policies. So it's not just infrastructure. You also need to look at skills and innovation and business and so on. And the, the leveling up fund has been designed to give local leaders um, a bit more choice and, and flexibility in, in identifying local priorities when submitting bids. Um, and then governments also realize that there are problems with having multiple, often competitive, funding parts. So most funding to deliver specific policy goals is done through one-off, often short-term, often competitive grants. And that creates a real resource challenge for local authorities. 
Um, it also, I think, creates uncertainty around what that long-term funding is, and it also means that uh, coming up with, with um, I guess, kind of joined-up strategies is quite challenging. So if you wanted to make a, a broad-based investment across infrastru infrastructure skills and innovation, local authorities would have, to, would have to submit winning bids to a series of different funds, and that's quite challenging. Um, so we are seeing that, that government's looking to consolidate some of those funds um, into the two big ones, the Leveling Up Fund and the Shared Prosperity Fund. But the question is, what more can be done to reduce the, the fragmentation of the funding? I think maybe the second point is looking at um, coordination and, and collaboration across government. And that's something we pick up a lot in our work, that, that quite often that, that system-level coordination is missing for these big programs. And we've seen good coordination at the level of individual funds, so the, the projects within a fund, um, and, and an improving picture when it comes to looking at them as a portfolio. But there are still certainly challenges, and, and particularly with how central government and local government coordinates, um, where there are challenges around that, that balance between central oversight and, and local autonomy. Um, maybe a third point is around, around skills. Um, you know, as, as the IFG work picked up, that's, um, there's a recognition now that, that lifelong learning and adult skills is really critical to, to productivity, to growth, and, and to earnings. Um, but there's, there's just a huge challenge here. So um, we looked, again, we published something on this last year, and we found that um, adult participation in, in further education and, um, and adult skills fell by, by nearly 50% between um, 2011 and, and 2021. And that um, was, was more acute in disadvantaged areas. So that's a, that's a really kind of a borrowing picture. And I've been told not to talk about devolution, but I'll just, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just briefly mention that you know, it's, it's good to see that there is some consideration of what is the right, that maybe central government isn't the right economic unit for having control over some of those economic levers. And so it's good to see the consideration of the role that devolution might play in levelling up. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Adam, finally, coming to you. Um, the analysis that Tom laid out was very much framed in terms of white paper missions mm -hmm. that were set out over a year ago now. What's your take on how committed Sunak now is as the new Prime Minister to that? Um, is there scope for more ambition to achieve big economic change, do you think? Hmm. Um, so firstly, let me apologise for my slightly croaky voice, which is the result of trying to sing along with Elton John in a big field about two days ago. Um, the missions do feel a very long time ago, don't they? So it was 18 months or so ago that the paper came out, and when uh, I read it kind of cover to cover, as I'm sure everyone in this room uh, did. You could really see that there was some thought about what sort of capacity they wanted underneath those missions, right? So it wasn't just here are 12 things we'll do. It's here's a cabinet committee that will oversee it. Here is new ways that will release data in line with these missions at different spatial levels, as, as Ruth mentioned. There were new ways the Treasury were going to report on uh, spending announcements alongside fiscal events. These were some, I think, pretty serious kind of machinery of government-esque plans. Um, and at, at the time, people were saying, wow, is this trying to make the Department of Leveling Up a sort of counterweight to the Treasury? Is this really trying to set up a new way to get regional development done? Um, that feels like a very long time ago. And I don't think those missions now are absolutely central to what the government are trying to do. Now, why is that? Because I don't think that's the same as saying they're not committed to leveling up. But that framework of the missions, I think, is different. Why? Well, three big things I think have changed. One is clearly the economic situation has changed. If you go to a voter on a doorstep now and say what's the biggest problem in the economy, they are unlikely to say levelling up or the north-south divide and much more likely to talk about inflation and the cost of living crisis. 
Um, and I think, therefore, um, the Prime Minister is focusing on inflation. I think, for what it's worth, that is the right thing to do, that if you want to help people with cost of living, then getting inflation down or certainly decreasing the rates is important. And a lot of really good work from the Centre for Cities has shown that actually inflation hits hardest in some of the places that are most in need of levelling up. Second big thing that's changed is the timing in the political cycle. We are now much closer to a general election we were previously, and suddenly machinery of government stuff that is very important, but not that electorally salient, gets much more difficult to do. It's much easier to fiddle around with cabinet committees and other bits and pieces and expend the political energy it requires to do that at the start of political term as opposed to the end of one. So I think that's why you're probably seeing much more of the Prime Minister's five pledges and less of the 12 missions in the White Paper. Uh, and the final thing that's changed, this might seem a bit inside a baseball, but I think it matters, is that DLUC over the last year have been massively wrapped up in a lot of stuff around housing and regeneration. So in terms of that department being the one that drives a lot of this change, both at a ministerial level, special advisors, they've been really set on trying to get through a number of different bills, renters reform, et cetera. So that department hasn't been able to be the kind of quarterback that it might have been for some of these changes. Of course, it's a cross-Whitehall effort, but the idea was that DLUC would drive those missions. So that's why I think the framing of the missions has changed. I do think, however, that there will be a big focus in the next year on levelling up, and particularly around future economic growth for towns. So let me say what I think that will look like. So the first thing to say is um, a lot of the economics and economic publication around levelling up will point you to cities. The politics points you squarely at towns. Um, politics in the UK now is basically a density function. So uh, James Kanagasori in the pollsters done a lot of really good work on this that shows that high-density constituencies vote Labour, low-density constituencies vote Tory, and medium-density ones are swing seats. That doesn't just mean towns. It might be a constituency with a bit of a city and then a rural area. But if you look at what the rough spreading out of houses in those areas, that predicts how that area votes. There are some kind of great graphs that prove that. Now, that means that both parties need to square a circle of how do I ensure that I can tell a story about future economic growth, which includes both cities and towns. And one of the ways that we're trying to articulate that onward is the need for both hubs and spokes. We absolutely need cities as the engines of growth, but we also need towns which both have uh, bits of industry that feed into those uh, cities, bits of manufacturing and others that you couldn't possibly locate in a city because of the square footage they require and also nice places to live. So they need to get the economic geography right very quickly so I don't go on too much. Economic geography is one. The other thing they need to nail is private sector investment. So all of Bart's excellent work points to the need to attract private sector investment instead of just throwing in a huge amount of public sector investment with no clear idea of how it will leverage um, private investment. What does that mean? It means certainty to, to all the points that were made on policy churn. One of the biggest problems with policy churn is that the private sector doesn't know where to put its money because it doesn't know if something's going to last for one year, five year, or 10 years, or, or one month, right? And so that means you need, in terms of land, real certainty over spatial planning and land supply. You need to know where the private sector should be putting its money for real estate. Um, and you also need much more certainty over what the framework is going to be for the government doing investment. So, so it's not helpful to move away from a thing like missions. And finally, so I can tuck in a diva point without calling it a diva point, mm -hmm. state capacity is a huge problem. So, and that's both for Whitehall and for local government. I really worry, absolutely we need more infrastructure in this country. A huge amount of the research has shown that transport infrastructure particularly is a real barrier to growth. But the government will not able, be able to deliver the amount of infrastructure it has currently announced. So I'm, I'm skeptical that announcing more is going to be the big game changer. What we need is a greater capacity, both in Whitehall and uh, in local government. It doesn't necessarily mean more people. It just means we need to start doing things differently, the use of digital technologies, new project management approaches, removing some of the barriers around the planning system and elsewhere. That holds things back. But without that increased state capacity, we can have the best plans in the world, but the delivery 
won't follow. So yes, economic geography, political certainty, and state capacity. I think there will be some more stuff on leveling up, but it probably will not be under those 12 missions. Can I respond to the issue of state capacity? I mean, you asked earlier about you know, how, how do we move forward, and I very much agree with you that capacity of government, both within Whitehall, but especially also in cities and towns, is, is very important. Now, at the larger cities, we're now building the combined authorities, and we have several of them, and it already has shown us that it has given us greater capacity of, of local government or city government to do this. I think the big challenge here is in the towns, and I think one opportunity that the Leveling Up White Paper is offering us is this whole idea of those six capitals. I would probably mm -hmm. even make it seven capitals because for some reason environmental capital dropped out and I think it has to be brought in given our net zero com uh, commitments. But that it's, it's a great concept, but these capitals sound, you know, human capital and social capital and institutional capital a little bit lofty, a little bit academic, I have to say, uh, you know, being from a university. So the question is, how do we make this concrete? And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that's really important in order to build local government capacity is how can cities or particularly towns build an broad-based integrated investment strategy around those capitals? And that does require significant local government capacity to actually do that because there are trade-offs, there are complementarities between these kind of things. You need to carefully track this and analyze it over time. Hmm. So, so I, I wonder if, if any of the other panelists have an idea about how we can actually do this because I think without that, it will remain sort of, you know, here and there a little bit of investment without sort of this comprehensive picture. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. I've come to the others as well. Can I throw in an extra thought of my own, a question of my own alongside that is, I guess both politically and economically, when we're talking about towns, what's the vision here? Is this lots of new private industry in those towns, or is it connecting towns up better to the economic opportunities that are around them, creating more of a, a network? But Tom, I'll come to you first. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, on, on the point about kind of the need for private investment, the need for that sort of integrated plan, um, we completely agree. And actually, a paper that we published um, just a few weeks ago looked at the role of devolution, we're going there, uh, to, um, to kind of drive economic growth, thinking particularly about what policies belong at, at different levels. I think w one of the key things that sort of, to summarize that very briefly, would be um, the particular economic geographies like combined authorities, the need to have the necessary levers that you can develop a really robust local economic plan, industrial strategy, call it what you like. Um, but no, there's been good development in trying to build these local economic plans um, sort of in these places, but without the necessary levers as of yet to really make those you know, bold documents that are action documents rather than aspiration documents. I think if, if you think about the, ro the role of a, um, a, a city or, or a, you know, a, a broader economic region could play in as being a sort of one-stop shop when a business is thinking about, do I want to invest here, or an industry is building up, and you can say, Yes, and we're doing this on skills, and we're doing this on transport, and we're doing this on housing. You know, a, an integrated um, sort of economic case for, for potential investment. I think that is a really important aspect of how you're going to drive a coherent private investment strategy is if you have that sort of local economic plan that isn't just we'd like to do these things and we like these industries, but is we control locally the levers necessary to make this a reality. On, on the point about... Um, towns, which I suppose links to that. I think that there is a real political challenge that, that Adam laid out. And I think, I suppose, that not, not being a politician, the, the way, how, how do you sort of link the economic case to the political one? And I think 
you know, economically there is a there is a strong relationship between the sort of the the income in towns and the performance of a nearest city. It's worked by the National Infrastructure Commission that has shown that. And you know how how affluent towns are clearly depends on the broader affluence of a region. It's not just about jobs in that town. Um, and I think this is where the, the hubs and spokes that, that Adam mentioned is is really important. Is that fixing transport in these cities to, the, to connect at least to the sort of satellite towns is a really big part of making towns a part of cities' economic success. Now, the, the political challenge will still come back, and as I'm not a politician, I can't answer it, is pe people <laughs> don't want to be able to travel to a good job in a city. They want to have a job right there in their town. I think that's particularly a challenge, given that lots of these towns suppose, had historical industrial bases that perhaps allowed for good jobs on their doorstep. Um, and it's possible that you know, the, the new economy looks different, and that's not so feasible. Um, but I think the, the link between the, the economic and the political case has to come through making the argument that an affluent city share, can share that affluence with the broader region and, and towns as well. Yeah. Adam, do you want to come on particularly perhaps reflect on the politics of this? Is that yes. Vassell? I should point out I'm also not a politician. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> dirty word these days. So, um, what's the vision? So, I think the key thing has to be kick-starting agglomeration effects in some of the city regions in this country, because outside of London, we just do not have them. So what does that actually look like in practice? So we did some work in South Shields recently in South Tyneside, just outside of Newcastle. Um, and they have a real opportunity there, I think, for a thriving tradable economy based around green industries and advanced manufacturing. SSE has Dogger Bank just off the coast. You've got Drax that are based at the port of Tyne. And that part of its economy could really fly. It is never going to be the same proportion of employment as the collieries were previously, right, as kind of the past 40, 50 years ago employment was. And I think the challenge is the narrative that's sometimes given by politicians around the growth of some of these sectors implies they will become the sort of anchor employers that they were in the past. The future of somewhere like Shields will involve more people commuting into Newcastle to work. I do not think that is a problem. It is a political problem, right? And what we are absolutely not, not saying is kind of get on your bike in order to live somewhere else. People should be able to have thriving lives in and around Newcastle and those towns. But it does say that a 25-minute commute, which is what it is on a, on a tram, which they have invested in, is a reasonable thing for an economy to function. Same with Wolverhampton. The success of Birmingham there matters. Wolverhampton is not going to beat Birmingham on business, professional, and financial services, as I think it sometimes tries to. But it might on future house building. We've got some real assets there on the future of the built environment. Of course, Wolverhampton itself is a city, but many of the people in Wolverhampton as an area live in towns around it. What gives me some optimism that these things might change is some what we did in Barry in the Vale of Glamorgan, just outside of Cardiff, where when we talk to people who, you know, politicians are sometimes worried that the area is becoming a dormitory town and isn't it terrible, and we need to start some sort of new R&D intensive activity here in Barry, which is not right for that area, right? You might have people working in some knowledge economy industries. It's unlikely um, to be a massive share of employment. When we actually have focus groups there and talk to parents or others, they said, oh, my kid will probably work in Cardiff. And they'll buy a house here. They'll stay living with us. They might commute in maybe two, three days a week, so working from home. And they were relaxed about that. And my sense from looking at other countries is that when you look at polling, there is a more relaxed attitude between the city and town relationship. And even where it might culturally be quite antagonistic, you know, so I'd never live in Milan or I'd never live in Paris or wherever else, they kind of get that what's good for them is good for us. And I think there's some maturity that we need to develop in both our political system but also just culturally about that relationship. I think that we will get there, but it might take quite a long time, right? It's a generational thing, not an electoral cycle thing. Mm. But that, that's what the future of towns is, I think. Of course, some tradable employment 
employment in a sector which leads to investment, but also a high number of people living and commuting into cities as well. Yeah, just maybe to answer Bart's challenge there about, about how to build that capacity for, for more broad-based thinking. I think perhaps two, two enablers. One, one is that, that sort of the, the focus on local government financial reform, um, which is, I mean, we all know that local authorities are under enormous financial strain. Um, we've, we found that uh, spending on non-social care areas has fallen by some 25%. Since 2010, so so you know, really quite a, part of, a perilous situation. Um, we and we've we've raised concerns around the sort of the capacity and the capability of, of the local authorities to deliver some of these these central um, centrally driven local growth initiatives. Um, we're still waiting for the fair funding review. So that was announced in the leveling up white paper. Um, our understanding is that that's not going to happen. This the spending review. Um, and we've had five single-year single financial settlements for local authorities over the last five years. So that makes it incredibly hard to have that long-term thinking and develop long-term, long the, the conditions that are needed for long-term certainty. And maybe the other kind of related point is around the, the, the need for that, that long-term policy certainty, because what that does, is, I think, it's, it's to Adam's point about being able to, to leverage and, and mobilize um, private finance and actually bring in other parts of the system so, for example, on the, on the skills mission, DfE is really staking the success of, the, of that, that mission around adult skills on, on it being an employer-led system. Um, but that requires the you know, employers then having to have the confidence to be able to invest in, in, in an involvement and engagement with that. Um, and, and from the evidence we've seen, we're just not sure the conditions are, are in place for that. Um, so I think those are, and that's not the answer, but those are enabling factors. Yeah. Look, just to sort of pick up on that. I mean, it's been mentioned a couple of times now, the financial constraints and the economic challenges that the UK faces. To what extent do you all think that there are policy options here that could make a sizable difference without requiring big amounts of public money to back them? Um, so, so one thing in which the UK is rather unique is that there's a very limited amount of fiscal um, authority for uh, local governments to go to capital markets to lend. I mean, the UK is really an exception within the OECD that all the money is coming central and there's very little leverage for governments to actually use local uh, capital markets or excess capital markets in general. So, so one thing, I mean, again, I mean, it's very easy to talk about fiscal devolution and say, okay, if you want towns and cities to do their own uh, uh, fiscal management, uh, you know, it'll all be fine. No, that really depends on how much capability do they have to tax, to lend, to borrow on the capital markets, and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, that's not a matter of more money. That's a matter of actually, it's part of, sorry, part of the devolution process. I think we have to use this word. Is you know, don't think too easily about this. Those are big transitions. But in many respects. The UK remains an over-centralized economy with building, having built very little capacity on the ground. And certainly on the fiscal side, we'll have to do a lot more of that before we can really see the kind of flexibility that, that towns and cities will need. Adam, what? So I think you can do it, but I think the, the, the way you need to do it is by signaling to the private sector so that they're happy to invest, right? Yeah. Using public money to um, unlock it. 
and coordinating a series of low-cost but high symbolism interventions, right? And that symbolism to the private sector. What does that mean? So I think that if you picked a part of the country and said, this is where we want a huge amount of money to go, that might be around the new HS2 station, or it might be an area of Manchester that's going to be an investment zone, whatever else. And said, so, right, we're going to set up a new development corporation, so you know that the planning here is going to have some more certainty. We'll have a strategic plan for this patch. The governance will be through that corporation, and you'll know who's going to be chairing it. Uh, there's public land there. We're going to throw that into the mix as well, so you can use that as part of the investment program. Uh, we are building some railway infrastructure, so we're going to zone that in a particular way so that we get transport investment in there too. If you start to pull some of those things together, then the private sector sits up and listens, and certainly some of the you know, public sector fund, LGPS, NEST, um, but also people like legal in general might take notice. And I think kind of evidence that that approach does work over time. So Andy Street in the West Midlands, when I was working there, spent a very long time, actually after quite bruising experiences with public funding competitions, saying, you know what, every meeting that I would usually go into Westminster for, let's sit with legal in general and some of the team there and persuade them over a series of times that we are serious and certain about where in this region we want investment to go. And legal in general, about a year and a half ago, at um, the kind of large, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but the large investment conference that happens in the UK around real estate, announced a £5 billion investment pot into the West Midlands around housing uh, over the next five or 10 years. Now, the entire levelling up fund is £4.2 billion to be spent across the whole of the country over three rounds. And even then, government is struggling to get that out of the door. So I think it has to be about how do we unlock private capital. And I think there are some ways that are low cost, but symbolic and give the private sector confidence that can, can do that. Bruce. Maybe sort of on the on the point of, of not necessarily needing more money, um, you know, along, alongside leveraging private finance, I think there's also something about spending what there is wisely. And so, it's it's very much about ensuring that resources are being allocated to where they're most most effective. And to do that, you need to understand what works. And we keep harping on about evaluation, but but I can't stress how how important it is to understand, you know, where where you're putting your money and whether whether it's going to do what you want it to do. I think maybe the other thing is, is around the, you know, the, all the usual things that we emphasize for big programs. It's having a really clear sense of what your long-term objectives are. It's having um, a, a proper measurement against those, and that's, that's a bit of an issue when it comes to local economic growth because of barriers around having subnational data at the right granularity. And then it's that really boring stuff, you know, the rigorous governance arrangements implemented from the start and enforced. Um, you know, we we really see that often it's delivery where things fall down. So it's it's spending what you have in the in the right way. Tom. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the I suppose the the, the silver lining to this, if there's not going to be a lot more money, is that there's no way we're spending the money that we're currently spending as effectively as we could be. Mm -hmm. um, and so mm -hmm. therefore, there must be capacity to do that better. I mean, I think this is definitely something that the white paper really does recognise by emphasising the the system reforms and rewiring Whitehall and changing the way that, um, that things work. You know, ultimately, the, the levelling up fund is what, over three tranches, going to be £4.8 billion. That's tiny, over multiple years, tiny in the context of the UK economy. That's not money that is going to drive big change. If that's the totality of the levelling up agenda, it sort of doesn't remotely match up to the ambition. But if you see, actually, that lots of money that government spends, you know, the totality of the, the trillion or so that it, it now spends, is actually can contribute towards these um, factors if spent better. And then you see the importance of the way we spend that, whether that's the, the tier of government that's spending it or the consistency with which we design policy, or you know, the fact that infrastructure, travel infrastructure tends to be 20 to 30% more expensive to build in the UK um, for various reasons than it is in, in Western Europe. Now, there are definitely not easy wins, but there are wins there 
um, that money could be spent more effectively than it, it currently is. Can I briefly respond also to the issue that Ruth hinted at, which is in a way public sector efficiency. The Chancellor has now announced another round of public sector efficiency, which is great because at the Productivity Institute we do a lot of work around this and we do believe that the public sector has opportunity to increase productivity better. But I do think it's very important, particularly when you think about uh, uh, strengthening uh, towns and cities, to think about the role of the public sector not just being efficient, where there is scope, but also making sure that the rest of the economy can be efficient. So it's, it's a complex question about some trade-offs that are there about the, the role that the public sector has to also make sure that private investors do have an opportunity to find their way in places, that we are uh, investing properly into the skills and into the education system and so on. So this balance between making the public sector and, the lo in this case, local government councils more efficient versus making sure that they create more efficiency in the rest of the economy is a difficult balance. Yeah. I, mean, is it, I don't know to what extent you look at this in other countries, but other countries where you have more devolved powers, for example, do you yeah. see greater capacity but perhaps conversely less in the centre of government because more of that is being done locally? Yeah, let me start by saying what I think something very difficult to, to repair in the UK, but it is something perhaps that we have to keep in the back of our mind. We don't have in the UK a proper middle level of government. So we have central government, we have local government, most other OECD countries have some kind of middle provinces, states, and whatever. Um, they're quite often very boring type of institutions, uh, but they're very important, particular from the perspective of planning. And because planning is what's creating all these negative externalities and positive spillovers, potentially. We don't have that in the UK. We tried it at the time with the RDAs. That hasn't worked out very well with the regional development agencies. But we need, now need to think, without having that, how, how do we rebalance uh, central government and, and local government? And I think what is very important here is that there has to be a lot more coordination and long-term vision from central government in order to allow local government to get that kind of longer-term focus. That's difficult because it goes to the issue of state of capacity, mm -hmm. which is difficult to build in local government. You've only got so many people to do the job. But I think without missing that middle level, we have to make sure that that coordination between Whitehall and Westminster and local governments is significantly going to be improved. And you know, it goes to the whole issue of fragmentation that we've been seeing in sort of all sorts of initiatives and short-termism and so on. If there's one thing that I would plead for is we need, we need to build an institutional framework that gives us more horizontal coordination across different departments in government that do pro-productivity policies because we don't have a productivity department in government. We should have one because there are different departments that deal with this, but we need to coordinate. But we also need to coordinate vertically with these local councils. And, and that is something, you know, we really need to think very hard about what are the institutional implications of a successful levelling up policy. Great. We've got lots of questions coming in online already, so I will come to audience questions now. I'll start with one that we've had uh, come in online. So Emily Urquhart um, correctly points out that obviously economic levelling up is only one aspect of the levelling up programme. They're also um, concerned about pride of place, um, people, how people feel about their local areas. So she asks, how can local areas measure their own sustainable growth through metrics other than GDP, which we know misses significant elements of local economies? I guess related to that, to what extent is a sort of economic levelling up we're talking about likely to translate into those some of those other wider levelling up objectives? Adam, do you want to? Yeah, very happy to. I mean, so a significant proportion of Onward's work actually focuses on exactly this question, on the social fabric of places, pride in place, and why that really matters. And so really appreciate the questions because we're able to talk about it. 
republished a thing called the Social Fabric Index, which tries to do that, tries to measure, um, including economic metrics, because the degree to which you feel happy in your community, it doesn't matter that you've got a good wage and there are jobs available for you and your, your children, your family. Um, but there are other things that matter too. And so we look at the availability of local assets, look at the strength of norms, like kind of family membership, group membership, are people participating, are there in religious groups in volunteering and other things as well. And we've been really pleased actually that Social Fabric Index was included in the government's levelling up white paper as the measurement of, um, kind of community resilience and social strength. I think the really important thing, because sometimes these two are played off against each other, right? So I'll go to a, a pride of place themed event and they'll start laughing at me if I talk about economic growth and why that matters. Then an economic event, they're like, why are you talking about hanging baskets? What's wrong with you? <laughs> the two matter and they're enormously important because if a place doesn't have pride or community, young people leave it, uh, employers don't want to go there and there can't be long-term economic strength. Investors don't want to put their money there either and vice versa. We have an entire paper about what you can do on uh, pride in place in local areas. Um, some of it about the more obvious things, about the strength of community groups, ability to volunteer, to participate, availability of housing. Some things that I think are, are less intuitive. So antisocial behavior we found is a huge barrier um, to leveling up and to feeling a sense of pride in your area. So those things absolutely do need to be tackled. So you have sustainable growth um, and you can do both. They play out over different timescales, but you can do both. Anyone else want to comment on that? I'm supposed just to say that um, obviously our, our paper did focus specifically on that productivity challenge, partly because you know, it was, was a prominent focus of, of this agenda and also has been a kind of long-standing, consistent problem. But we absolutely recognise that you know, levelling up, certainly as the, as the government conceives it, its objectives are broader um, than, than just the, the economic and that other stuff does matter, but I'd agree with Adam that they're, they're really linked. You know, well-being is one of the missions, and we know that one of the things that's most closely linked to well-being is you know, employment and wh whether you're employed or not, for example. So there, there is this link between, between the economic and others, and I'd agree with Adam that in most cases I expect them to be complementary rather than um, kind of, um, yeah, played off against each other. I also would think that in addition to the social indicators, I think the question also was focused on sustainability mm -hmm. and environment. And mm -hmm. that's why I made the point that I think, you know, the seventh capital was dearly missed in the, in the leveling up white papers, environmental capital. And I think it's really important to take that into account. It's, it's not a trade-off with productivity because all these resources, we have, limited, we have limited means in order to produce all these resources. So we need, we need to pro produce the non-economic resources also in a productive way. So in that sense, I don't really see it as a, as a trade-off, but it's very important to look at it in an integrated way. And if I could, the, the climate environment thing is super interesting at the moment, right? So the green agenda for the last five or 10 years has been really dominated by the, the climate as a topic, right? Climate change, decarbonization. It's really interesting the last year or so, the environment, the availability of green space, sewage being <laughs> dumped in rivers, that sort of thing, has become much more electorally salient. So I wouldn't be surprised if, as well as some of the broader national targets around net zero, we see more of a discussion about air quality, about the availability of green space, about some of those topics too. And that's definitely part of this broader levelling up agenda. Great. Are there any questions in the room? Please put your hand up. I'll take a group of two or three questions. So we'll go lady there, then over there, and we'll come to you at the front. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Mary Smith. I work in the minimum wage team at the Department for Business and Trade. Um, the mantra at the moment is that the two things that are going to power economic growth are the government getting out of the way and deregulation, which is obviously linked to that. And I'd just be really interested in your views on those two drivers. Um, and over here next. 
Hi, Sarah Murray, Local London, uh, one of the London sub-regional partnerships um, representing boroughs to the northeast and southeast of the capital. The question really is about, and you gave some really good examples, Adam, about places that are starting to work holistically and work well together. So our question is, other examples of where different models of governance are making a difference in terms of more joined up approaches? And the second part of the question is about government departments thinking differently? Because I must say, going back to the reflections that you've, you've all correctly made about fragmentation and the challenges, we're not going to see more money, but more efficient intra-departmental thinking can make a massive difference to local implementation of these policies and indeed the funds. We spend all of our time working through different calls, different programs. We can see intersections, we can see uh, joined up opportunities, but of course when we see the design of the, and the operation of a, of a program or a fund coming through, you can see the departmental uh, silos you know, written all over them. And I think it'd be great to hear good examples of government departments who are really starting to reach across and indeed engage with localities. So two parts, both good places, good models of governance that are making it work well and good departmental exa examples. Thank you. And Peter at the front. Uh, Peter Hurston, I'm a researcher here on our devolution program at IFG, and I should say that as a co-author on the series of papers that Tom mentioned at the beginning, and no one's told me that I can't talk about devolution. <laughs> so um, one of the things we talked about in the papers um, last year, as has already been mentioned, is the importance of um, the complementary nature of some of these policies. So there's no point you know, putting a lot of high school workers into a place if they can't access good jobs or transport or so on, or increasing R&D up to R&D high-skilled researchers and so on in an area. To what extent does the panel think that the trailblazer devolution deals with Greater Manchester and the West Midlands offer a genuine step forward for how devolution can help really join up and coordinate local economic growth more effectively through the single settlement and so on? Um, I should clarify for benefit of the audience all of these references to not talking about devolution. <laughs> <laughs> not because we don't want to talk about devolution, but I think there's been a, a lot of discussion of devolution in itself as the answer, and we wanted to explore a bit what policies are we talking about here, how can that actually work effectively, whether from central government or, or devolved. So that was why we were trying to avoid just only talking about devolution in as, as an end in itself. Um, <laughs> brilliant. So, um, uh, set questions there, some um, related. But do you want to take the question on deregulation, the extent to which government getting out of the way is... Sure. The uh, yeah, and, and maybe also quickly touch on a few others because yeah, there's a nice collection of questions, actually. So government out of the way in deregulation, it may be the mantra, but if I look at it internationally, that's not the line of thinking currently. The line of thinking is actually joining up and government has a, a role to play. Deregulation is a great thing, but we've gone a long way with it. And, and we all know economists call this sometimes an inverse U-curve. We know there's some kind of optimal level of deregulation. If you push too far, you actually it actually backfires on you. So I think it needs a lot more careful thinking. And actually local context, talking about uh, uh, regional and local, is quite important in this respect. Coordination is absolutely critical. Uh, at the Productivity Institute, and we're actually talking to some other partners in this respect as well, we're wondering why the UK is now one of the few countries in the OECD that doesn't have a Productivity Commission. 
Now, I'm not saying that a, productiv a productivity commission, which is a kind of sort of, you know, there are different models here. We have a paper at the Productivity Institute describing how this works in different countries. And some of them are statutory, some of them are a little more, a little more independent. It's not a panacea for everything, but it does create a framework for coordination and understanding these differences. And I think we really need to think about this in the, in, in the UK to see how can we create an institutional framework where we do this and a productivity commission or a productivity board would one way to, to begin to think about that. And we do, of course, see great, you asked for examples of this. Uh, we do, of course, do see some good examples. You know, we do this um, uh, event together with Policy at Manchester, where, where I'm based. And actually, Greater Manchester is just one of those combined authorities that has managed to actually coordinate. We're doing uh, specific work in Rochdale and in Oldham, and we do see that the Greater Manchester connection does help to actually push through those uh, policies. Trailblazers are a good start, but it's just, you know, it's a very early start, and, and we really need to build this out, again, in a much more systemic and long-term kind of focus, rather than just a few experiments and see if it works, and, um, you know, with the risk of it pulling back once we, when we run out of money again. So, a lot about policy coordination and building institutions underpinning that, uh, that have a long-term uh, sustainability would be quite important, in my view. Yeah, can I jump in on the, on the point around the, the interdepartmental thinking and the, and the, the cross-departmental working? Because we're actually doing a piece right now on cross good, good practice when it comes to cross-departmental working, and that's something we, we pull out a lot in, in our work. Um, and I think, I, I think we are, the, the sort of the starting point for that is having a really clear sense of what are those long-term outcomes that need to be achieved, and therefore where, who's the lead department on that and who might be the supporting one? Um, and we're seeing there's some quite useful mechanisms here, the, the outcome delivery plans. Um, we see as quite helpful tools to, 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 finding, to finding that and helping departments to work together. Um, when we looked, this is a few years back now, we looked at Treasury's spending and, and planning approach. And we, we found at that point that there was very much a tendency to prioritize um, short-term spending control over long-term value for money. But we are seeing positive steps in this direction. So, the public value framework, the implementation of that is a really good step forward. Um, as I said, the, the, the outcome and delivery plans, uh, Treasury and Cabinet Office now are working much more closely on, on monitoring departmental, the, the performance of, of departmental objectives, particularly where there's cross-working. Um, and the focus in the recent spending review on having the evaluation evidence to support that, that, that thinking around long-term outcomes, as well as being explicitly asked, you know, what, what three outcomes is the settlement going to help you deliver, dear department? Um, all those things are really good. Um, and so I think, I think those, are, those are positive steps forward, but then you do also need the, the sort of the, the accountability to, to underpin that. Um, and, and that's particularly when it comes to the, the objectives which require cooperation and um, coordination with local government. And we have, you know, we, we've certainly noted in the past that, that um, government's accountability arrangements, um, you know, they've, they've struggled to keep pace with, with the increasingly complex ways of delivering, um, delivering policies. Um, maybe I think the other thing that also helps keep departments honest when it comes to these, these cross-cutting things is it can be really helpful to have independent institutions. So thinking about the National Infrastructure Commission, um, with that focus on, on making recommendations on, on long-term infrastructure needs. The Climate Change Committee, um, you know, that, that, that independent role of, of, of taking a focus on those long-term cross-cutting objectives and, and continuing to monitor and comment on them. I think that can be very powerful. Tom. Yeah, and 
Obviously, thinking about effective government working is something that we at the IFG love to do, and certainly that, that persistent challenge of silos um, thinking and the need for cross-cutting working is, uh, applies to lots of policy areas, obviously applies very much to, to levelling up and, and regional policy. Um, I'd actually highlight some of the work that DLUC has done around the, the levelling up missions internally. They have set you know, a lead department for every mission, identifying other departments that need to be involved. And I think certainly you know, when there was perhaps more momentum behind the missions last summer, they were making really good progress on, on some of that. And I think there is a, a real recognition, certainly within the levelling up task force and those trying to lead on levelling up within, within government, that, you know, that it needs to be a cross-government uh, thing. And actually, just to plug, we've got an event coming up in a few weeks looking at how central government can organise itself to deliver an agenda like this, trying to touch on exactly those questions. Just briefly on the trailblazer, I'd agree with Bart that it's, it's not kind of an end point and, and things need to go further. But I think it is a really important staging post as much for the, the principle of it as anything else. The, the principle of having a single funding settlement that a combined authority will decide how best to spend locally with appropriate accountability and so on. You know, creates a, a step from which you, know, you can over time add more policies and more money into that Pots. It's also the kind of launch pad from which you can do tax devolution and fiscal devolution, as we've seen in, in Scotland and Wales. You know, it's taking away bits of your Barnet formula, adding a bit of, um, bit of tax revenue. So I think we'll look back on it as a very significant staging post, even if in and of itself it's, it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, so on this devolution point, um, let me give an example of where I think this has worked really well and how close we're getting to that. So uh, in the US, Amazon about five or so years ago ran their HQ2 competition before they put their second headquarters and basically said, make your pitch to cities across North America. And it was bonkers. Like of Mayor Sly James of Kansas City reviewed loads of Amazon products with a video of him saying, come here. Like the whole thing was insane. And everyone was throwing investment incentives at Amazon saying, here's the amount of cash that we will give you to come to our area. Virginia said, look, there might be some tax incentives, but that's not the comparative advantage here. We've got 10 universities, community colleges, and other educational institutions, and we will set up a specific qualification in kind of computer science and associated degrees for Amazon. We will be your supply chain for talent. And they picked there because the key constraint for them wasn't actually probably the marginal um, rate that they'd make on each dollar that they earn, but just having enough people to fill the jobs that they wanted at that moment. Now, I think the powers that Andy Burnham and Andy Street got in the Trailblazer deals, particularly around skills, so the fact there's now these boards that can oversee 16 plus technical education between the center and that local area <laughs> makes it more likely that when an investor comes, a company says, look, I want to massively expand or move to your area, what can you offer me? That they can say, yes, of course, there might be some uh, core financial incentive, but there'll also be land supply can bring together skills. There'll be work that I can do on the cultural offer and the um, leisure facilities around your patch. Um, who's going to do that for Barrow, right? Like at the moment, the Cumbria Devo deal is stalled. If I am BAE and I want to have a conversation with a serious player in that region that can bring together different things for me that I can take back to head office and say, we should absolutely double the size of our footprint in Barrow, who do I call? And I think that's part of the problem with not having this middle tier that Bart talked about. There's no one that can bring that stuff together unless you want to go into central government. And I think it's unlikely that conversation with central government will be as passionate about Barrow over another area than a local elected leader. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that does bring us um, pretty much to the end of our time. So um, thank you very much to our panellists, to Tom, to Ruth, to Adam and to Bart. 
um, for contributing to a really interesting discussion. Thank you to all of you uh, in the room and watching online. And thank you very much to Policy at Manchester for partnering on this event uh, with us and this whole series of events. Um, the video and sound recording of today's event will be available online very shortly if you missed any of it or would like to re-watch the highlights. Um, and if you're interested, our next event at the IFG is going to be an in-conversation with former Chancellor Sajid Javid, which will be on Monday starting at 9.45. Uh, so do join us for that as well. But please join me in thanking our panellists. <laughs>